This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Amara, Julian, Israel, Stephen, Caleb J., and Sam VR. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Amara, who asks, which of the four Gospels in the New Testament was written first? Well, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a clear difference between the first three and the last one. John's Gospel is organized thematically, whereas the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are more or less chronological. They're often referred to as the synoptic Gospels because it's possible to harmonize their accounts, to compare them back and forth and see that they tell more or less the same stories in more or less the same order with, of course, some differences. The question is, which came first? Scholars argue over two possibilities. One argument is that the first gospel to be composed was Matthew, uh, which is the first to come in our canonical sequence. But others argue that actually Mark's gospel, which is the shortest, was the first to be composed. So, Taking both of those possibilities, the argument for Matthew coming first is based largely in tradition. There are no first-hand accounts of the composition of the Gospels, so we have to rely on what people wrote after the fact and also on the internal evidence. Because in the order of books in the New Testament church, Matthew was placed first, it's often assumed that in the early church they believed that Matthew was composed first. The argument for Mark is interesting, though. Mark is a shorter book. It doesn't include some of the things that the others include. And so some scholars argue that Mark's gospel was composed first, and that later Matthew and Luke had access to Mark's gospel when they wrote their own. And so they were able to use it as a source, but also to modify or add to it as they wrote their own accounts as well. Most scholars these days lean towards Mark as being the first gospel to be composed, Ultimately, we're not certain which of the Gospels was composed first, and of course, it doesn't really matter to us in our interpretation which came first, because all of the Gospels are telling the same story. Our next question comes from Julian, who asks, If a baby dies before they are born, did they have a sinless life? In last week's episode of The Big Question, we said that despite popular belief, babies are not innocent, that even little babies are sinners capable of being disobedient to God's law and therefore subject to condemnation. Now, Julian's question takes things back a little bit to before birth. If babies are sinners, are unborn children also sinners, or is it 
birth that marks that dividing line between innocence and sinfulness. Interestingly enough, from the Bible's point of view, there is no difference between the unborn child and the newborn child in terms of sinfulness. All human beings are sinners. All human beings inherit a corrupt, sinful human nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. What is true for adults is true for children, it's true for babies, it is true for unborn children. The evidence that we can point to here is a fact which, as I mentioned in a sermon a few weeks ago, is pretty unambiguous. If an unborn child had lived a sinless life, then that child would not have died because death is the consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. The fact that we are subject to death is evidence that we live under the rule and reign of sin. I know that sounds strange because When we think about the sin of Adam and Eve, we think about a sinful choice. God commands them not to eat of the tree. They choose to eat of it. How can an unborn child be guilty of making such a choice? Actually, the Apostle Paul addresses this in a very important passage in Romans chapter 5. Paul is talking about the relationship between the sin of Adam and the salvation of Jesus Christ. He talks about how death entered into the whole human race because of Adam's sin, and all humanity after Adam was under the yoke of death. And as he describes that, just listen to the way that he touches on the example that we're talking about here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That last phrase is the one that I want you to think about. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Well, who does Paul have in mind here? Well, it seems to me that he must be thinking of exactly the scenario that we're talking about here. Those who have died before birth and are incapable of making the kind of sinful choice that we often associate with sinfulness itself. So, if we understand that the reign of death is a consequence of sin, and all those who are subject to death are subject to death because of sin, then it's easy for us to conclude that that everyone who is capable of death has the yoke of sin upon them. The good news is that Jesus Christ in his death has atoned for our sin, All those who are in Christ, regardless of when they face death, will be rescued and restored to eternal life. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Israel. So let's give Israel a round of applause. Here's Israel's question. 
Why did Jesus get baptized? Israel, as you know, right now we are in a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you go back towards the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we actually have Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus. And when I preached through that text, this was one of the questions that I tried to address because it is a very important moment in the life of Jesus. So, just to remember a little bit what's happened in Matthew's gospel, we have the gospel opening up with a genealogy of the lineage of Jesus, with an account of the birth of Jesus, with heralding of Jesus's coming, and that he will be the king who was promised. So then Jesus is born, and he matures, and then we find in this interesting moment, right before Jesus heads out into the wilderness and is confronted by Satan, that he presents himself to John the Baptist, who has been baptizing people for the remission of sins in the Jordan River, and Jesus submits himself to baptism. Now, of course, John the Baptist resists. He does not think that he is worthy to administer baptism to Jesus. It should be the other way around, if anything. And yet, Jesus says, no, no, we're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So, what is the meaning of Jesus' baptism? To answer the question fully, we really have to think about what baptism is is all about. And of course, that's a question that that different Christians will see differently. Many people believe that the purpose of baptism is simply to show your obedience to Jesus's commands after you have been saved by him. That baptism is a symbol that Jesus gave that symbolizes the washing away of sin, and it's just something he wants us to do once we are following him. However, as Presbyterians, we see baptism a little bit differently, and we see it very much in light of the Old Testament practice of circumcision. In other words, although baptism is new, it's not entirely new. It fulfills a familiar purpose for the people of God. In the Old Testament, God gave his people certain signs that signified that they were his people, that they belonged to the community of his promises. In the Old Testament, circumcision had that function. In the New Testament, baptism takes on that function. Baptism, of course, symbolizes the washing away of sin, but the washing away of sin is received by all those who have been promised salvation in Jesus Christ. But of course, that does raise an interesting question, because Jesus has no sin. Jesus doesn't need any sort of washing away. Jesus is the one who does the washing. So why does Jesus receive the sign of baptism? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons that he receives baptism. One is that he is the head of this covenant community. He is the firstborn among us. He is our elder brother. He is our leader, our head. So in receiving the sign of baptism, he is leading us into this new covenant and its signs. So that makes sense. Jesus intends for us to follow after him, and so he does this thing that all his people 
will receive. But I think there's more going on here than that. Remember, for Matthew, Jesus is the king who was promised, the anointed one. That's what Messiah, that's what Christ means, anointed one. Now, anointing is something that was done in a way that's very similar to the way that we administer baptism. When a king was anointed, the oil would be poured on his forehead, and it would set him apart. It would sanctify him. In the same way, when the waters of baptism are applied to us, the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is applied to us, marking us, anointing us, as it were, making us into kings and priests in his new kingdom. That's what's signified by the sacrament of baptism. Jesus' baptism signifies a kind of anointing, a, a, a preparation for the role of kingship, which he is about to assert immediately afterwards when he confronts the enemy of his people, Satan, and conquers Satan in the wilderness by resisting his temptation. There were probably other layers, other mysteries that are at work in the baptism of Jesus, but those two things, I think, give us a good understanding of why it is that Jesus would be baptized. First, because he is the head of the covenant community, and this is a sign of inclusion in that community. And secondly, because he is the king who was promised, and this is a way of setting apart that king for the role and the victory that he is about to accomplish. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Stephen asks, do you like math? Stephen, not only do I not like math, but I actually really dislike math, probably because I'm not very good at it. I can add and subtract, but beyond that, my mathematical abilities are pretty limited. So no, I don't like to do math, but of course, math is often necessary, and so I encourage all of you listening to apply yourself to learning math. Don't follow my example. And now, Caleb J. and Sam VR have a pair of related questions. Caleb wants to know, what was your worst injury that you ever suffered? And Sam wants to know, have you ever had leprosy? <laughs> well, uh, Sam, no, I have never had leprosy. So leprosy is not the answer to Caleb's question, the worst injury that I ever suffered. Uh, I have really not had anything even close to leprosy afflict me in my lifetime, and for that I'm very grateful. I don't have a lot of injuries that I've suffered that I can list for you. Uh, most of them are pretty minor. I think probably the worst self-inflicted injury would be the time that I stabbed myself in the hand. It went in pretty deep, although it didn't go in all the way or, or go through my hand, which was nice, but it was a little scary when I did it. Probably the worst injury that I've ever suffered at someone else's hands was the time that Lori decided while we were driving on the highway that she would karate chop my throat. 
And so that's what she did. And of course, as you can imagine, I cried out in pain and choked and my tongue was sticking out and she laughed and thought that was really funny. When I asked her why she did it, she said, I did it to see what you would do and what you did was hilarious. That is probably the worst injury I've ever suffered, not just physically, but also injury to my heart as well. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.